Welcome to Lexis, the podcast all about language and linguistics. I'm Lisa Casey. I'm Jackie Glancy. I'm Dan Clayton. And I'm Jill Lavender. Right, so on this episode of Lexis, we're really pleased to talk to Johanna Gerwin, who is a sociolinguist at QMUL and DFG German Research Foundation postdoctoral researcher for the London Talks Project. So hi, Johanna. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you're a German linguist who lives and works in London at the moment, and you're studying London English. What attracted you to the city itself and the language or languages spoken in London? Yes. So I'm an an English linguist from Germany. So I'm not a a linguist of German or anything like that. So I've always been interested in English as a language. And first it was, I was interesting because I was mainly interested in a social linguistic theory called enregisterment that I think we're going to talk about a bit later on as well. And I was just looking for some, any interesting variety to study the phenomenon on. So basically just like a, a research ground for this theory. Um, And London English seemed ideal because it's so well known and it's used in popular culture so much. And people talk about this, which is all that's really important for enregisterment. But it's it's funny because since they moved here, things have sort of switched and a theory is more of an afterthought. And I'm now interested more in Londoners and their problems and what they care about and how they speak, of course, and and about their language than the actual theory. So your London Talks project is now well underway and it's described on the project page of the website as being about the historical enregisterment of London English. So what does that involve and what does enregisterment actually mean? Yes, enregisterment is a theory about how speakers think about a variety. So what their idea of a variety or a dialect is. If you ask people about a dialect that they're familiar with, they usually have a sort of very rich knowledge about this dialect and have sort of intricate thoughts and reflections about this dialect. And it's exactly this kind of knowledge that enregisterment is about. So when a dialect is enregistered, it's a dialect that people think about and that they talk about as well, Mm. as opposed to sort of more classic, more traditional social linguistic, social linguistic focus or social linguistic data, namely how people actually speak and what comes out of their mouths, regardless of how they think about it. So enregisterment is about a reflexive and discursive variety rather than the actual spoken or structural variety. Right. Okay. So I guess that, that it's fair to say then it's it's less about, it's less, this project's less about you kind of analysing the features of London English and maybe kind of, you know, what it is thinking more about how people think about it and talk about it and describe it. Is that is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. That's what it's about. It's sort of the meta level of language. It's not about how people speak, but how they themselves enregister speech. So how they think about speech and then also talk about speech. That's the meta level. Yeah. So using mm. language to speak about language. Right. Yeah, exactly. And people do this in in terms of sort of observable ways. For example, they characterize dialects varieties in terms of features which they find prototypical of that dialect. They don't actually have to be that the features which are most common in actual speech, but these are the features that are enregistered, that people have sort of noticed as typical of the variety. People talk about ways of speaking or dialects in terms of place, where some dialect is spoken, so they enregister it in terms of place. They speak in about a variety in terms of speaker characteristics and social contexts and situations. So, yeah, a variety is enregistered in terms of social meanings and social contexts. And it's exactly 
these aspects that that I'm looking at with regard to London dialects, and I'm using the plural because there's several in London that need to be sort of teased apart, and people have diff have different registers for London. So mm. And so that idea of a register, I suppose that's that's the register bit of enregisterment, isn't yeah. it? I mean, so yeah. a lot of students will probably be familiar with the concept of registers and maybe kind of aware, you know, they, they might link it to things like kind of formality broadly, but also it's yeah. like specific registers that would be used in certain contexts. Yeah, that's the social linguistic definition of this theory of this in this this concept. Yeah, Of course, a formal register, informal register, this is these are also social contexts that determine a language and people notice when to use which kind of register, which kind of style in which situation. But this, it extends to other situations as well. If yeah, So if people are in a different place, for example, they might not use their, their local or home dialect because it's just not the right mm. context for it. Or even if they are with specific people, whether they speak to their brother or whether they or in within the family and whether they speak to somebody else. It might also influence not just the formality of the language, but also the language features that are used, sort of more dialectal features, if you want. And registerment is really about different styles, but not just a style that somebody comes up with, you know, yeah. and it's just an individual style, but it's a, a style that has been recognized as used by many people in specific situations. And a register is dialects can be registers, yeah, sort of regional features or social features can be subsumed under registers, but it can, other styles can also be registers, like for example, sports announcer talk. Yeah. Right. If I say that, people will automatically think of a specific way of speaking, which is typical to sports announcers. I could probably imitate it, could probably characterize it in some way. So this is a very specific situation and it has a specific way of speaking attached to it or the other way around, the way of speaking has a specific situation attached to it. Right. And it's these okay. links, these links between ways of speaking and social contexts that enregisterment is about. And this is this link, basically, uh, this, this we say index is a, a term from semiotics, which has a signifier side and a signified side, so to speak. So the right. way of speaking signifies social context. This is the index. Okay. So if, if that's what a register is, then how does mm -hmm. something become enregistered? I mean, is mm -hmm. it through sort of repetition? Is it through recognition yeah. that it's it's a yeah. thing? I think it's generally a question of how speakers become aware of certain ways of speaking and associate them with social context. And I think it's just a very natural process which happens all the time and which I could even like do with you now. I just could, I could play you some sort of register which you don't know yet. And then you would sort of start thinking, okay, linking it to a certain situation. It makes sense in that particular situation. Yeah. So it's just a very natural process of people just categorizing their social environments, basically. I think there's not much more to it than noticing other things about your environment. Mm. But it is about becoming aware of, of linguistic features and, and the associated social contexts. And this can happen in, in various ways. For example, one very important aspect is metalinguistic discourse. So the, the discourses that you can find on TV or in, or in the media, basically, social mm. media and so on. Yeah, somebody will notice something and then put it out there and then people will start noticing it as well. It's right. sort of a, a reproductive cycle. And then also, I think something like pop culture or just cultural products in general, when you have a comedian on stage, for example, and they use a register mm. which just doesn't fit the context at all and then it becomes funny and then 
but the only funny thing is that the register doesn't fit the context, you know, right. and this is also sort of moments when you are made aware of, yeah, sort of these, these indexes, these links between social meanings and social uh, features and social contexts. Yeah. So I guess that sort of meta awareness of it is, mm -hmm. is when people kind of think, you know, so you get someone would say, oh, this is how people on YouTube often talk, or here's a, like a TikTok yeah. style. Or, and that's a kind yeah. of, you know, everyone can say, oh yeah, it's those things. Yeah. Exactly. So like you say with the sports commentator, you're kind of expecting yeah. it to fulfill certain kind of linguistic purposes and there'll be certain features that will be recognized as being common to yeah. that in that context. Yeah. And you but, know what you've just done, that's also a very sort of important process and enregisterment. You've started labeling styles. Okay. It's a TikTok language right. yeah, or yes. a news reporter said. So as soon as you yeah. have a label, you almost have the thing because people will, if they recognize the label, they also, and it makes sense to them, <laughs> let's, let's yeah. put it like this, then they will also recognize the style and then there you have it. There's a register. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I guess that kind of, it, that cuts both ways, doesn't it? Because I suppose as we're going to talk about later on with things like MLE and Cockney, that those yeah. labels themselves carry connotations to different people, don't they? They sort of develop this, their own social lives, if you want. I mean, if they, if they persist, if it's not like an ad hoc formation, like one you could create, like, I don't know, you might have a, a family internal register for how you speak to the dog or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, yeah. But this is some, it's a register, 100% which is known in your community <laughs> but <laughs> neighbors know yeah <laughs> but if it's something that persists yeah which is it's if it's if it becomes a social thing the the way of speaking then you can observe differences in enregisterment in different people that's sort of part of mm. an aspect of my project but also find commonalities of course you can see how it changes over time it can the label but also the the register itself can be completely re-evaluated depending on what happens to it for example you can use some language features which used to re refer to just being from a particular place use it in for for another meaning like for example ironically to indicate that the people from this place are a little bit dumb or right. you know so th these are sort of yeah circular or psych cyclic is the word right. cyclic processes you know where mm -hmm. Of a register can sort of, or the, the meanings of certain linguistic features can change as well. Yeah. And you, you said before about social meanings. So, you know, registers having social meanings as, a, as in they communicate something about the nature of the speaker or some sort yeah. of idea about the speaker's identity. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in terms of the, you know, the, the project you're working on at the moment with, you know, London Talks, how are you investigating that and what, are, what sort of methodologies are you using? Yes. So with London Talks, I'm interested. It's the name is meant to be clever because it's about Londoners who talk about yeah. how they talk, you know? Yes. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, of course. And okay. so in the London Talks interviews, I talk to Londoners about that, right. how that, that, yeah, how they talk. And what I'm doing with these, what I'm trying with these interviews is to elicit metalinguistic discourse structured metalinguistic discourse. You can find metalinguistic discourse in the media. You can also find it ad hoc. And yeah, so I've been interviewing about 60, 60 to 70, Lon 70 Londoners over the last one and a half years. Yeah. And um, they were from all over London, greater London, any, any age group, any ethnicity. The only requirement was that they had to have grown up in London and lived most of their lives in London as well, mm. which is not that easy to find. No, no. <laughs> but yeah, I did find my Londoners. And 
what I did then is I played them five audio clips of what I well, identified as prototypical London voices. So I played them a Cockney speaker, a multicultural London English speaker, London-based RP speaker, so pretty much standard speaker, estuary English speaker, which mm. is also a label which has been associated with the London region, and an Essex speaker because obviously the Essex accents, the various as well, mm. but Essex accents are also sort of influenced by, by the Londoners who moved there. And then I asked them questions about these audio clips. For example, I asked them, does this sound like a London accent to you? Where would you place the speaker? I gave them a map of Greater London where they could sort of circle the areas where they think they would find the speaker. What kind of person speaks like that? How do you imagine the speaker, well, to be like, you know, yeah. what, what does a prototypical speaker with that accent look like? I also asked them, what else? Oh, yes, labels, of course. What do mm. you call this? Yeah. Because I didn't give them any labels. They would just listen to the to listening to the clip. And then I asked them, okay, what do you call this? Okay. And once they had given me all the info about this third speaker, I asked them about themselves. So what would they call, first of all, which accent sounded the most like them? What would they call, they call their own accent? What has influenced their accent? Do they change their accent depending on specific situations? Why do they change it? Do they know any famous Londoners who speak with a really good London <laughs> accent? Who are yeah. they? And so on. So yes, just all the aspects of enregisterment of social meanings associated that can be associated with language and not just the social meanings, but also the personal meanings, you know, the, the, yeah. the lived experiences that they've had with the dialect. That's what I was interested in. So what kind of things did people say then? When, they, when, when you were playing them recordings, what were mm -hmm. their kind of views expressed and what kind of labels did they start to produce? Yes, that's interesting. Okay, so when I asked them, does this sound like a London accent to you? They were like, yes, of course. So that's right. good. Okay, <laughs> because it means that all of them were familiar with right. most. Okay. The Essex one was a little bit tricky. It mm. wasn't completely alien, but it was an accent which they couldn't place. But a lot of them couldn't place. But generally, people had had a very good sort of awareness of the dialect landscape that they were living in. Yeah. So that's a good, that's, that was a good starting good start. point. <laughs> yeah. And then they, the map task was really interesting or fascinating to see how comfortable people were with this map task, because this is just one city, you know, and we have five different dialects, but they were able to sort of put this down to the Isle of Dogs or an area in Tottenham, but not the area right next to it. So people have very specific ideas about where certain dialects can be heard. Right. Then the labeling was also interesting because I have some younger informants, especially sort of more MLE speakers, people mm. with an immigrant background or, yeah, sort of second generation immigrant kids, if you want. I mean, of course, they're all British, but Cockney doesn't mean a lot to them. It actually mm. doesn't mean anything to them. They know the accent, yes, but they don't really know the label. It's just, it's just not, has never been relevant. They might just say, well, a school teacher talked a little bit like that. That's, that's all they can say. I mean, they do have social meanings and associations, but they don't really have the label. Mm. And for multicultural London English, that's obviously a more recent term. It's also a term which started in academia. It's not one which has come from the people, so to yeah, speak, sure. at least not initially. So people were often not familiar with this label and had other ones like slang. South London was also a label which was associated with the MLE speaker. Right. Don't tell the people of E3 who speak Emily that it's South yeah, London I know. speaking. <laughs> I know, I know. For some reason, people associate it more with South London. Right. Uh, and 
yes. So labels, labels was interesting. Nobody mm. was familiar with estuary English. That was right. a media term which was coined, coined in the 90s. I think it's probably pretty much died out or it's just not talked about much anymore. No, not beyond the A-level and a few linguists. Yes. <laughs> it's interesting when you kind of think about the sort of labels that people are coming up with, because that's very much part of enregisterment, isn't it? Is yeah. that sense in which yeah. the kind of label they apply to it categorises, starts to you know give it an identity. And you said some people were describing Emily as slang. Is that maybe because of the sort of lexical differences people sort of associate Emily with words? My impression is that they use the word slang for non-standard language in general, mm, and they don't distinguish okay. between lexis and phonology and so yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Sort of overall. But there might be some speakers, I'm not 100% sure, I would have to check <laughs> in, mm. my, in my data, but they definitely do associate the term slang with the words. That's what they do. Yeah. And there's Cockney slang, like the rhyming slang. Yeah. When they say yeah. Cockney language or Cockney slang, they usually mean rhyming, Cockney rhyming slang. Yeah. And then there's the new slang, the youth slang. Right. That's okay. what they associate with Emily slang words. Yes. Yeah. And they're just much more noticeable than other linguistic features. I've noticed that if I ask them to or when I ask them to describe the different London dialects, what sort of language wise, you know, mm. what yeah, what the dialects were about, then they, they usually came up with words rather than other features. Okay. Yeah. So this I mean this this question is ridiculously open, but what's the history of London English and what's changed? I mean, it's a terrible question because you could talk for hours about this. But I mean, what's in terms of your project, what do you think might reveal about what's happened? Okay, I think in terms of like the history of London language as linked to history of migration patterns or mobility of speakers, mm. because that's very obvious, I think, in this context. And even the label Cockney, I read something that it emerged also out of a mobility issue namely london used to be the city of just the city of london surrounded yeah. by villages of the name of i don't know yes <laughs> boroughs yeah. boroughs now tower yeah. hamlets and so on so the city of london at the beginning of the 19th century the, the city of london was just this this area which is today's city as well and the cockney is originally someone who was born within the sound of bow belts you know this folk tale which i've yeah. also heard many times in my interviews and bow charge is in the city of london and I think when London started expanding at the beginning of the 19th century, and also the villagers, when it sort of merged, villagers had more reason to go into the city, and mm. the city people had to move out. The Cockneys were those people who were from the city of London, you know, who it, apparently it used to be a, a bustling market area around that church. This was a way to distinguish between a villager and a, and a true Londoner, you know. And then the Cockneys always sort of moved further out and they moved to the to the east end and now they're sort of even further out in Essex. Yeah. And instead in the east end is now the east end is now populated by immigrants who arrived in the middle of the 20th century from the colonies and also as refugees, which then started this MLE multicultural London English way of speaking or dialect. Yeah. And I guess kind of previous and, movements of people as well. So, you know, Jewish people leaving what Russia and Eastern Europe in the sort of late 19th century. Absolutely. Huguenots but as well. Yeah, that's true. That. And that's often, but they don't really have a label for themselves, do they? They're mm. just assumed under the traditional Cockneys, which yeah. happen to be, li be living in the East End when those yeah. people arrived. So there is a, like, a, people have told me about a Jewish strand of Cockney and so on, which which I find really interesting. And I think Cockney yeah. was inf influenced very much by, in, by these groups 
who came to the East End as immigrants earlier, sort of at the end of the or beginning of the 20th century, at the end of yeah, the 19th century. Yeah. I mean, I think for, it may just be my kind of ignorance as well, but I kind of, you know, I, I, a lot of the things that I thought were kind of traditional Cockney have got kind of seem to have roots in Yiddish as well. So like yeah. stuff like kosher, I always thought was just a kind of like regular Cockney expression until I realised actually, oh, well, that comes from, that's a different source entirely. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But there was never, I don't think there was a, a different label. That's interesting. You know, Cockney... It was just subsumed under Cockney. And Cockney, or Cockney has, has been multicultural as well. Has, yeah, has of been very multicultural. And then multicultural London English became multicultural th through different cultures, you know, who arrived. Sure. But, yeah. there's, there's, there's quite a lot of meta-linguistic discourse around these, isn't there? Particularly around MLE, which I think you've, you've done some, you've, you've been writing about recently. But, you know, there's, there's some quite worrying sort of metaphors and discourses used around that, around a kind of, you know, linguistic invasion or linguistic infection. I think there's one sort of classic mail, one Daily Mail article that talks about, you know, MLEs are like a linguistic superbug infect, creeping out into the shires, infecting young people. These are quite powerful and uh, you could argue quite dangerous metaphors to use. I mean, what, what, what's your kind of sociolinguistic take on some of these ways that you know the discourse around these yeah well the i mean language change is always viewed with suspicion i think it's fair to say that because usually young people's talk as well and it's people don't take young people seriously i don't want to take them seriously it's the threat to the status quo and so on so people always resist language change as a society you know and uh, at the same time it's inevitable as well it will happen anyway <laughs> Uh, that's my social linguistic take on it. <laughs> and with these metaphors, okay, so it's quite common to cast a new way of speaking that's coming in or new language features coming in as, as a storm or as a natural disaster sweeping the country. We can see this with all kinds of discourses, also in other countries as well, in Germany and France. So it's, it's not a very original thing to cast a new way of speaking or incoming language features in, in the context of language change as a storm or as a, a flood, a natural disaster that is gripping some country. But with Emily, it's exacerbated because it concerns kids from immigrant families. Yeah. And they're sort of the scapegoats for everything anyway in these conservative media outlets. And so you have, with Emily, you have the new way of speaking coupled with immigrant metaphors as well because immig casting immigrants as an invasion immigrants coming to the country as a, an invasion and a foreign enemy coming to the country and sort of not just coming to the country but sort of creeping into the country mm -hmm. on small boats at night you know that's it's it's got this sort of it's it's out of your control it's it's got this yeah this sort of secret invasion to yeah. it yeah which which makes it even worse if it was like an army invading you could do something about it but it's secret yeah and then suddenly they pop up so everywhere so you have these very powerful metaphors and images which have been used in, in, in these separate contexts, you know, new way of speaking one on the one hand and immigrants on the other hand together. Yeah. And that's yeah. what makes it so overwhelming and all and all consuming. And, and that's why also the, the media find it very easy to seize on it because they can cast it as the absolute catastrophe. Yeah. And that's that's I think what what is the problem with the discourses about multicultural and English. And I guess as well, there's that sort of sense about, you know, maybe a sort of wrong-headed view. Well, definitely a wrong-headed view that English as a language belongs to the English. It's our property. Yeah. And that anyone yeah. else using it is misusing it, abusing it, whether they're Americans, 
just general young people who aren't us, you know, or the cursed foreigner with their foreign ways of speaking. Yeah, it's really interesting because Cockney used to be this pariah, you know, it used to be this outcast of a way of speaking, only like the dumbest and the poorest would speak like that. But now, in contrast to Emily, because it's often in these in these newspaper articles, it's also it's often contrasted with multicultural land and English. And you have you have the traditional, you have the the lovely Cockney sparrow, you know, and yes. Cockney has suddenly become such a, a lovely and and wholesome <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that needs to be preserved, you know, and people have to now have to write down, note down and collect and preserve Cockney rhyming slang expressions and so on. It's become this sort of this cute, folksy, authentic way of speaking, whereas Emily is, is the aggressor, you know, and Cockney is the victim in London. But then, of course, RP is also the victim you know, received pronunciation, even though, of course, English received pronunciation has so many influences, changed so much, you know, and it's changing constantly. Yeah, exactly. There's, they, there, there's sort of this artificial boundary between, between registers, you know, people like mm. to have clear categories, even though they don't really exist and they don't really make sense. But people that just like to think as RP, as the pure, good, clear, understandable variety versus MLE, which is well, all the other things, everything yeah. else, basically. So going back to the London Talks project then, so what's what's happening next with that? Where where are you taking that? Okay, so the London Talks project is finished for now. I've done all my interviews, I've collected all my data, but we started a new project at Queen Mary University, me together with Caitlin Hogan, a PhD student at Queen Mary University. And what we've done, we've, we've launched Real Talk. It's called Real Talk. Because, okay, so I have to explain this a little bit. We, okay. We did a community festival at the university. University organizes a big outreach university, university, research fair festival of communities, it's called, at the university at a weekend in June. And we participated there in the festival last year with a London Talks stand where we just, I don't know, did some activities about London dialects with the visitors. But what we also did, we created little badges with London slang or dialect words on them you know some cockney rhyming slang but also some multicultural london english slang like allow it peng things that londoners use or at least have used recently i mean some yes. of them are already outdated yeah. but these slang badges were a big hit and this got us thinking okay so a part one part of enregisterment is something called dialect commodification which means Boy. that you use the dialect dialect phrases, dialect words, sort of iconic phrases of that dialect and put it on commodities like mm -hmm. t-shirts, mugs, tea towels. I mean, there are Scottish or Welsh villages which have little souvenir shops with, you know, these products that you can yes. buy as a tourist, but also as a local, if you move somewhere abroad or somewhere away, you can take reminder them. Reminder of home. As a badge of identity. Yeah. And a reminder I've got some of from Belfast as fridge magnets. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. There's nothing like this in London. For some reason, the souvenir shops are full, but there's nothing about London dialect. So we thought, why not create a little bit more dialect merchandise, commodify <laughs> London dialect a little bit more than just these badges that we were giving out. So uh, we also got one of these outreach grants from the Center of Public Engagement at Queen Mary University. Mm. And we found a community partner, some paired up with the Myland Community Project, which is just around the university and we organized a little event there at this community project or community center 
to source slang terms like cool, interesting, saleable slang terms from the community, from the MyLand community around the university. We did this one afternoon, just put a table basically outside of the community center and yeah, asked all the yeah. people who are coming by anyway or who comes to the center regularly to provide some slang terms and to tell us on which items they would want to see which term and so on. And then we sort of did a selection process, decided which were the best, the most iconic terms, and then put them, yeah, and then printed them on a couple of T-shirts and bags. And what else did we do? Hats, bucket hats. <laughs> bucket hats. Yes. This is my dream. Like... Rough. <laughs> I can show you, I can show you some. You can't show them to the, the listeners, but this is one of our bags. Governor, governor, it says, yeah. Yeah. Oh, governor bag. Governor is a good old cockney word. Then we have do, do, me, me, a do me a favor. We have this one. Say nothing. Yeah. And then yeah. we have another one called what you're saying or SMS slang. Right. W Y S. Right. What you're saying. I need a paint um, bucket hat. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we have bucket hats with brav and madness. Madness. That's oh, madness. That's, that's madness a great one. Because yes. it's become a sort of count, count now, doesn't it? You can do a madness or... Yeah, yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. Madnesses. Exactly. Yes. I'm wearing my t-shirt. Do oh, me a right. favour. Yeah. This is our little, this is our logo. Real Talk is London. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we didn't have a lot of money. So we produced some of this merchandise and then we raffled it off at this year's Festival of Communities. Mm. So unfortunately, all the merch is gone because people oh. were really, really keen to get their hands on bags and things. And yeah, so we haven't had the chance to sell the stuff. This is one of the buttons, by the way. Porky, Porky pies. pies. Yeah. Yeah. But we'd like to find a way to produce more because people were really keen to get the stuff. It was really mm. interesting. People were so happy to see their words printed on these items. And I don't know, one woman <laughs> went away. It's like, I have a say nothing bag. I have a say nothing. <laughs> and there was a group of sort of young lads, I don't know, yeah. teenagers. And they came like, a madness hat. Look, there's a madness hat. Can I get the madness hat? I, I pay for it. I pay for it. So, because we were raff we were raffling the stuff off. Yeah. So there's definitely a market for it, I think. And, yeah. and a real interest. And people just thought it was really funny to see these words, which they just use co completely informally and colloquially, sort of printed, you know, it's and out celebrated there. Celebrated and treated celebrated. real, exactly. I suppose. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So my new project is now called Real Talk. Yeah. <laughs> Real Talk East London. And maybe, we, I mean, I have this dream of doing this in like other London communities with other community centers, because also the afternoon with these, these people, not just young people, but also like older ones, also some mm. traditional Cockney people came by and provided their words and just, we made them engage with their dialects. And yeah, and it was just so interesting how people talked about these dialects and also what it meant to them, which words meant especially much to them and so on. And yeah, I think it's a it's a good thing to to do this again to produce more merchandise. But in the meantime, you can follow our social media. We are on Twitter, Real Talk East London, and or the handle is Real Talk East. And we are also on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, we'll uh, put a link in it. the show notes. Yeah, yeah, That'd be and great. yeah, you can follow us and and see any updates. And if you want any of the merch then we can we can arrange it but you have to prepay and then we produce it for you because we have absolutely no no funding or no investment at oh, the moment yeah, yeah. i thought we get some freebies by talking to you 
You will get some, yeah. Oh, we have lots of (laughs) stickers as well. We have tons of stickers and we still have some badges as well. So badges, I can provide you all with badges. Yay, great. I mean, it'd be really interesting if you were doing this in other parts of London to see if there was a kind Mm -hmm. of pattern emerging around different, you know, different, particularly kind of lexical items appearing. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that it's, you know, there will be some, won't there? Because MLE has got quite... Well, certainly when I lived in London, there was quite a lot of variation in MLE, depending on where you lived. I was teaching in South London, living in East London near Mile End, and you did notice different, you know, different slang being used. And it's not just a kind of, you know, homogenous variety, I suppose. It's more like a kind of, isn't it more like a sort of linguistic repertoire feature pool that people sort of pick in and out of around different parts of London, depending on local influence? Yeah, no, absolutely. And to be honest, I mean, some of these lexical items are so fleeting or they're just used mm. in a particular friendship group. And some people gave us really interesting slang terms, but they wouldn't wouldn't be, wouldn't be able to put these on T-shirts or on hats because they're just not wide, recognized widely enough, you know, just yeah. don't have the same meaning. It's kind of interesting for me also as a, as a researcher to see which of these words are sort of enregistered enough in the wider population to make sense on a T-shirt. Yes. Yeah. And then, of course, there are words which would never go on a T-shirt, even though they're widely registered, like words which say, which which mean negative things, you know? Like, Bad words. Like peak, for example. Peak is a good one, but it means oh, terrible. So yeah. why would you wear this yeah. on a T-shirt? Yeah. <laughs> or like, I don't know, other slang terms that they they always gave us slang terms. When, whenever we did these activities with people from community, be it at the festival or at this event that we were doing, people were happy to provide lots of slang terms, also explain these slang terms really mm. well. But yeah, there are only certain which which would be suitable for commodification. Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. a, a different aspect of enregisterment. Mm. No, really interesting. It's a great way to sort of take it forward, isn't it? Yeah, hopefully. We'll see. Yeah. We just need money like everybody else. And yes, you've you've given a few links to the various sort of project places we can go to find out more. And I think if students want to read a bit more about the London Talks project, the website there has got a nice kind of explanation of what you've done there. Mm-hmm. I have a London Talks research website and I yeah. also write a blog or I have written a blog about my interview partners and also a little bit about the real talk, the merch, mm. London merch merchandise project. Yes. So you can find all sorts of hopefully light reading <laughs> there. Right. So the quick fire questions. What's your favorite book about language? My favorite book about language at the moment is Cockney Past and Present by William Matthews. It's from the 1930s. It's really old, mm. but it's such a interesting, funny, informative account of meta discourses about London dialect. Oh, actually just Cockney. So also for non-linguists, it's, it's really interesting to read. It's very well written. written. Mm. Yeah. And right. you can learn no, a lot about, you can learn a lot about the history of Cockney. Yeah. What's your favorite linguistic fact or idea? I like the idea that the enregisterment theory sort of takes for granted, namely that speakers have linguistic agency, that they can actually manipulate their speech in social, socially significant ways as well, mm. that they, that social factors and sort of their personal stances, opinions, attitudes, uh, their regis- enregisterment influences the way that they speak as well not just the way that they perceive language and how they categorize language, but also the choices, the linguistic choices that they make. 
And finally, what one bit of advice would you give to a budding linguist? Okay, there's nothing about language which is not interesting, I would say. And also, no, take or take in your linguistic landscape. Like, there's so much language in the public space. Mm. This is also a very important meta comment about language as well. And it can tell you something about how people enregister dialects when you look at graffitis, stickers that you see on lampposts, like all the language that you see around yourself, take it in consciously. And uh, yeah. Excellent. Now, thanks very much, Johanna. I think we probably need to end by saying like layers, etc. Some kind La- of... Uh, Blasphem. Or as they said about 15 years ago, I'm ghost. Hello, and for this episode's Lang in the News, we've decided to pick up on a news story that that touches on all sorts of different parts of the A-level course. It's a really, really interesting one with the Elon Musk's assertion that the words cis and cisgender are going to be treated as slurs or words of harassment on the Twitter platform. We really like this one as sort of a case study for lots of things that we talk about, because this is essentially, we talk quite a lot about institutions trying to control language. We've talked about the Académie Française in in France before, but this is the first time it's happened on sort of a large multinational platform like Twitter with, you know, millions or billions of users and and of course, it's notoriously difficult to try and control language use in any sort of way. And this mm. and this dips into discourses about transness. It dips into language change. It dips in a bit to etymology and lexis and semantics. This is a, a really really interesting case study for us. So we're going to start by having a look at the original tweet that kind of prompted Musk's response. Yeah. So the original tweet was from a guy called James Essis. And he says, yesterday, after posting a tweet saying that I reject the word cis and don't wish to be called it, I received a slew of messages from trans activists calling me sissy and telling me that I am cis, whether or not I like it. Just imagine if the roles were reversed. And then following this, we have a reply by Musk saying, repeated targeted harassment against any account will cause the harassing accounts to receive, at minimum, temporary suspensions. The word cis or cisgender are considered slurs on this platform. And he's the boss. And he's the boss. <laughs> so, yes. so following that, I thought, well, okay, let's let's have a look at, you know, what is the, the definition of a slur according to Twitter? And in Twitter's own guidelines, um, slurs and tropes are deemed to be language intended to degrade or reinforce negative or harmful stereotypes about a protected category. Right. And that's and that's kind of fair, isn't it? As a mm-hmm. as a categorization for a slur, I think what's difficult or what's problematic is just saying that a word is a slur regardless of context. And of course, we bang on about this lots. Is that that if there's you you can't say cisgender is a slur with with no context at all around how how or what means with which it was used. It sounds mm. it sounds like it was used as a slur by the trans activists if it was used in the way that James S's is talking about. But then that doesn't take into account the fact that him rejecting the word cis is also mm. sort of harassing trans people, yeah. you could argue as well. So I think I think possibly, I mean, the within that original tweet, he, he talks about being called a sissy, which is interesting because, you know, from, from my childhood, the word sissy was used to kind of, if somebody was behaving in a way that... 
wasn't particularly brave. So it could be, you know, a, a boy or a girl could mm-hmm. be classed as a sissy if they weren't kind of standing up for themselves. It was also used to, you know, to to kind of degrade boys, suggesting that they were in some way kind of effeminate. But now it seems as though there's a, a new word. So we've got this this example of kind of semantic change and broadening, a word that's being used to to kind of denote a particular type of person with a particular kind of attitude. So on Urban Dictionary, which is a, an interesting place to go, there's, there's, there are all kinds of definitions by individual people. But the first one that pops up under sissy talks about it being a derogatory term for non-trans people, often used to express frustration with the oppression faced by trans folk. So... And it's got a spelling change, hasn't it? So yeah. the original sissy yeah. was sort of S-I-S-S-Y and this is C-I-S-Y or is it double S-Y? C-I-S-S-Y is the spelling that, that I've got here. So it yeah. looks like it's kind of deliberately a bit of a play, isn't it? Yes. To kind of twi- so, yeah. turn the tables yeah. on a, you know, what might have been seen as like a homophobic or kind of discriminatory word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's quite interesting sort of looking at where these come from as well, isn't it? Because I think with, with cis as in C-I-S, Mm-hmm. That's that seems to have been a relatively recent coinage as like a prefix. And there's an article in Pink News which talks about how cisgender refers to people whose gender identity aligns with the one assigned at birth. And the researcher who coined the term, Dana DeFoss, first used the word in a 1994 post on an early internet forum, which the Oxford English Dictionary cited when it added the term to the dictionary in 2015. So while it has been sort of floating around as a term among scientists and researchers and people who sort of looked at gender identity in the past, it's, yeah, it's relatively recent in the dictionary. And then when you look at, you know, what where it sort of comes from as well, it has got, there's, a, there's an article from, I think, McGill University, which talks about how the word cisgender has got scientific roots. And when you kind of think about it as, you know, if you've got that as a prefix and you've got trans as a prefix, the kind of etymology of that seems to be that, you know, trans means kind of across. So I guess it's like transgender is across genders, isn't it? Whereas Mm -hmm. cisgender, it sort of suggests it's on this side of, I think, is where the OED Mm -hmm. talks about it as coming from. And so they say the prefix cis, cisgender, cisgendered, cissexual, derived from the Latin preposition cis, meaning on this side of yeah and that's and that's lovely information for us as the as the epic nerds that we are but i mean the average person on the street mm-hmm. you know has doesn't doesn't care about any of that and won't know about any of that and none of that will matter in in their use of the terms yeah so what was really nice was reading some of the responses to sort of musk's declaration that cis and cisgender were were slurs and would be considered mm. you know harassment with people talking about why they would choose to use them. There's a, there's quite a nice piece in The Independent mm. called No, Elon Musk, Sis is Not a Slur. And it's a journalist talking about how Sis is really helpful for people to <clears throat> kind of interrupt the, the normative idea that, that being, that having a gender identity that aligns with your birth sex is a norm. Yeah, and that not having that is outside of a norm. That if we've got the words like trans and cis, then it actually helps us have more nuanced conversations than just assuming that you know cisgendered people are a norm. Is what they argue in the in the Independent article. Yeah, I think then that is that the one by Noah Bolatsky who talks yeah. about his his daughter. Mm. Yeah, and I think that, that it that he makes a, a a really clear point 
that the term cis allows him to distinguish or differentiate his own experiences from those of his daughter and makes it easy for, for both to kind of understand who they are and, and who the other person is. And and so much of language and like language study at A level focuses on language being a, a really important aspect of your identity and, and how you kind of present yourself to the world and the, the choices that are available to you. Yeah, yeah, and his response was quite thoughtful, wasn't it? There were a lot of responses on Twitter and, of course, the considerably short <laughs> yeah. um, character <laughs> amount that were trying to demonstrate that anything can be a slur if you use it as such in context. And mm. there were people using ridiculous words that are entirely neutral and not at all offensive inoffensive ways to demonstrate that anything can be read as a slur if it is if it is wielded as such yeah and i mean it's it's about the politics of language isn't it in a way mm. and I, you could i mean you could argue that cis is political and ideological jk rowling has she's fairly she's got a fairly long track record of anti-trans statements but you could i think you could argue from a different position that yes it is it is ideological in the sense that it is drawing attention to norms in society and asking people to think about those norms and to not assume too much about them so that's that kind of is ideological isn't it but in an ideological in a way that sort of opens up a discussion and i think there's some people who comment that there's that there was a similar conversation about differentiating on racial terms about about using the word white yeah to not assume that white is normative but to identify yourself within a really particular kind of social identity and using you know other terms as well to identify different social classifications that otherwise get smoothed over in ways that can be problematic Mm. when they manifest as discriminatory which is which is what kind of a lot of the trans debate is about yeah so really interesting case study do dig into it we'll put all of the links to the things that we've talked about in the show notes so go and have a look 